Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast about film and television in which we discuss a topic which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis. On March the 10th, 1997, the WB, a nascent cable network in need of both a hit and an identity, got both when it aired Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest, the first two episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV adaptation of a moderately successful, largely forgotten horror comedy starring Christy Swanson and Donald Sutherland. Despite moderate expectations for the series, which launched as a mid-season replacement for the recently cancelled soap opera Savannah, the premiere delivered some of the WB's best ratings up to that point and quickly established it as the home of smart, savvy dramas aimed at a teenage audience. And over the next five years, after which the show moved to the UPN, Buffy was joined on the schedule by the likes of Dawson's Creek, Felicity, Gilmore Girls, Roswell and Smallville. Beyond that initial impact, Buffy has become one of the most beloved and influential shows of the past two decades, with scores of series, often, but not always, in the sci-fi and fantasy genre, cribbing from its mix of rapid-fire, pop-culture literate dialogue, long-form storytelling, and formal inventiveness. Twenty years after the world was introduced to Buffy, Willow, Xander, Giles, and the town of Sunnydale, California, we look back on a show that redefined what television could be, and at a character who died twice and saved the world a lot. Joining me this week to discuss Buffy is and its influence on the world uh, and us personally are zoe jays returning to the show the comedy programmer for king's place and the producer of the london podcast festival hi zoe hi ed and also joining us is uh, ellie graham the uh, a publicist for think jam hi ellie how are you hello i'm very well thank you thank you both for joining me for uh, to discuss the show that uh, i know that we're all big fans of so, so so much so that I think one of our first kind of long conversations when we all met was about the, <laughs> I'm sure. the relative me- yeah. the yeah. Uh, relative uh, merits of the various villains on Buffy uh, this was going back about 12 years or so yeah. maybe longer than that yeah uh, first off Ed I'd like to congratulate you on that that Nick Weiger style opening <laughs> that was exactly what I was going for <laughs> well it worked it worked thank you uh, very impressive <laughs> So uh, I guess to to start off, uh, I would like to just ask the two of you, how did you find Buffy? Did you start watching it when it first started airing? Did you pick it up at a later date after people had said it was something to kind of watch? I I was actually quite late to it. I think I started as it was finishing. Um, So between the first and second year of uni, I went off traveling and had an amazing Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And between the second and third year of uni, I had nothing to do and spent spent my holidays over the summer back where I grew up, uh, which just happened to coincide with two of my best friends also being home, one of whom was a massive, massive Buffy fan. And we used to mm-hmm. spend our Monday evenings drinking wine and eating cheese. And mm. she basically introduced me to Buffy and we binged the entire thing over that summer. And wow. I would also add that when we got to the end of season three, we were then uh, alternating between Buffy and Angel until we got through the whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> you're so cool <laughs> yeah it was a great summer <laughs> best time of my life I didn't go outside once <laughs> it, it was such a hot summer as well it was really really sweaty <laughs> so we kept just uh retreating to her living room on a Monday evening and uh and binge watching um I nice. I uh watched it when it aired in the UK for the first time um, I watched the first episode I remember seeing it in you know the radio times or some other ancient text and um i would i'd seen the film and i remembered quite enjoying it and that i thought it was an intriguing prospect so i watched it and i remember loving it 
absolutely immediately. Me and my big brother watched it. Yeah, and I was I was blown away by it pretty much straight away. I don't think I'd ever seen anything quite like it. Yeah, I started watching it from the beginning kind of out of habit just because throughout like my childhood I just watched whatever the BBC were airing after The Simpsons. Yeah, standard. <laughs> In the 6.45 slot on BBC Two, they always, for, for whatever reason, they decided the perfect uh, programming block was two episodes of The Simpsons followed by uh, kind of a, an American sci-fi import. So it was a lot of Star Trek and, you know, things that people remember, but also things like Seven Days, a um, time travel procedural that I don't think many people remember at this point. Um but uh, like Buffy kind of went into the rotation and it was one that really struck me from the beginning because it it was just a lot funnier than a lot of those other shows. Like yeah. it wasn't po-faced. Yeah. Uh, and also just like from a very young age, I was just obsessed with vampires. So anything that kind of uh, added to the mythology of vampires was something I was, I was going to check out. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I was... I, I remember watching a lot of those, as you said, it was that block of 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 the simpsons followed by other sci-fi things but for whatever reason i think at the time although i would have watched a lot of them buffy just just didn't cross my radar to begin with i don't know what i was mm. doing at that time but um yeah it was very hard watching it on bbc2 because it, it was on at 6:45 and it got bumped around so much um mm. they treated that show really poorly and whenever there was any kind of snooker or darts on buffy was immediately <laughs> taken off a lot yeah um, I don't. I, well, that's true of a lot of um, terrestrial TVs. They don't always appreciate the properties that they have. I remember Six Feet Under ending up at eleven o'clock on Wednesday nights after a repeat of Wife Swap, and I was furious. <laughs> and the last season of Six Feet Under, they put on at eleven p.m. after Wife Swap. Yeah, it was like they're trying to hide it from people for some reason. Mm. <laughs> And Seinfeld had the same thing as well. The biggest show in the biggest sitcom in American history shown at half twelve. Yeah, on, you had to like BBC. chase it around the schedules. Uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. Also, it was interesting because Buffy. It's not the most violent or explicit show in any way, but it was all, all kind of sometimes a little too much for the 6.45 kind of tea time viewing. Mm. So you also had on Fridays, they would have the late night repeat where oh, they would yeah. add in the violence that apparently was too much. For, or like um, yeah. that episode where it's just Buffy and Riley having sex for the entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. That's an odd episode. <laughs> Maybe we should just not talk about season four at all. <laughs> there's, one, there's at least one very good episode. There is one very four. good episode, which I'm yep. sure we'll talk about. We'll come to. I remember that one being weird watching it on uh, on BBC Two, like at 6.45, because there wasn't much they could show of that episode, really. Yeah. It was like, they, there was a lot that they just had to kind of cut around and uh, it was... Uh, became very abstract. It was a thirteen-minute episode of Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was. It was really interesting watching. I'm glad I watched it when it aired rather than catching up afterwards because I was exactly the same age as the characters in the show, which mm. I think is the only time probably that's ever ever happened that I graduated high school the same year that they did and went to university the same year they did. I think mm. we, I was a little bit behind because I don't think it, it hit terrestrial TV for you know probably the best part of a year. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was really exciting for me to be like class of 1999 because the Scoobies were class of 1999 too. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and so you got to experience all of the stuff they were going through metaphorically, but without all of the. No, in reality, it was it was literally all happening to me. (laughs) I went to university. I drank beer for the first time. I turned into Neanderthal. Uh, yeah, I think that's a kind of a way into one of the things I, I like most about the show, both then and especially now that you can kind of look back on it and really appreciate it. I did enjoy that it was a show that had all of the kind of the, the surface level enjoyment of, of witty dialogue, pretty good action for, for kind of moderately budgeted TV show. But also there was a, the, the metaphorical um, aspect of the episodes of the Monster of the Week episodes added kind of a certain depth to them that similar shows that tried the same thing like the x-files which is a great show most of the time did have didn't really have that as much like those episodes were more kind of like here's a a cool fun idea but Mm -hmm. those episodes weren't necessarily about anything whereas a lot of buffy's episodes even the weaker ones they're trying to explore something metaphorically yeah and some of them are very sort of overt especially i think the earlier ones there's stuff like out of mind out of sight the the claire duval episode Mm -hmm. where she basically just disappears and that yeah. that kind of age of of sixteen, as they are, feeling ignored in the school corridors, is is a really genuine thing that that people, I think, in any country are going to feel. Um, mm. And it's quite an interesting thing to take because it's it's quite a mundane part of everyday life. So to find a way to really amp that up and and force the characters and you as the viewer to consider that as something you're going through and especially like you were saying Zoe you were kind of the same age when you were watching it it's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that might make you stop in the corridor the next time and think oh I wonder I wonder if I'm doing that or noticing other people around you perhaps treating people in that way yeah I think I think it it, it was one of the better things about the show and there were there were varying degrees of success I think certainly uh season two does it very well I think Angel rejecting Buffy after sleeping with her was very mm. powerful um once you get to sort of willow being addicted to magic it's perhaps a little bit just a tiny bit on the nose just yeah, going to yeah. like magic dealers <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i think also they went to the well of hormones turn young men into literal monsters mm. a few too many times like they could it was could still be fun but by the time like the swim team are turning into fish monsters. Yeah, but both those yeah. episodes, like both the pack and Go Fish, Xander mm. is super sexy in both those episodes. So <laughs> sure. I like them because you don't get sexy Xander very often. <laughs> yeah, or, or, and yeah, they never really address the fact he ate the principal. No, he like, doesn't. Which... He doesn't. That, oh, he, he doesn't. doesn't. He's not involved in the principal eating. Okay, they go off on their own and do that. that oh, I don't. Fair. I don't think they could have got away with <laughs> him eating the principal. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen that though. It would have added an interesting um, darkness to his character. Not that he needs it; he's well, they're, fine. They're he's kind all of responsible goofy dude. to varying degrees for terrible yeah. things happening. Like I think he brings about the once more with feeling demon, right? And a yeah. few people die because of yeah. that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, someone dances themselves into into a spontaneous into combustion. Yeah, Xander did that. They're all yeah. awful. <laughs> <laughs> terrible, selfish teenagers. That's that's all it is. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's perfectly in uh, in keeping with the milieu of the show. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, one of the things about the show uh, operating on a metaphorical level, I think that it was able to do really really well was it, it kind of reflected the experience of kind of being a, a young woman. Particularly, you know, the the basic concept of the show was an inversion of of the basic horror trope of 
a young girl goes into a kind of a dark alley and gets killed by a monster in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy's the one doing the killing. And that's kind of underlined from the very first scene of the show in which Darla goes into Sunnydale High School with a guy who you assume, because of his kind of demeanour, that he's going to be a vampire and that he's going to be the one who kills her. And then at the end of the scene, she murders him in uh, in brutal fashion. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, obviously by the time the TV show started, you'd already had, say, Scream, which had already mm. very much addressed that as a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but then looking back to the film, obviously the film having come from that precedes it by, I think, a couple of years. So it was obviously something that was already... Uh, in the mindset and I think it kind of probably helped bolster it a little bit having had Scream come out so people were familiar with this sort of notion that that the female lead could start to do this and I think they mm. just kind of really took that and broke it out and ran with it. Also because I, I re-watched the episode um, Helpless for this uh, episode which is the episode where Buffy loses her powers mm-hmm. and I thought one of the scenes in it that really struck me this time was uh, there's a scene where she has been to see Angel and, you know, kind of expressing her fears about what her life is going to be like if she's not the Slayer. And then she's walking home at night and she's uh, catcalled by a couple of men who I think then turn out to be the vampires that are trying to kill her. But, like, because after three seasons we're so used to the idea that Buffy... Exit can go out into the kind of the night into the world and she'll be fine because she's super powered and it's kind of her her domain. Suddenly, her not having that powers it kind of re it kind of for me like this time around reinforced the idea of like oh that's kind of what the experience is for most women and and having Buffy go from a position where she's really comfortable in the night to mm. not being comfortable at all was uh, really kind of effective and I, I always liked how the show foregrounded that her experience um in a, in a kind of a, a, a really interesting way yeah. yeah because i think you do get to that point where you're having watched through a few seasons you kind of start to take that for granted and yeah it was really put in stark relief when when that happens and i think as the female viewer you kind of go yeah that's that's kind of what happens and it is quite scary and i guess mm. for the male viewer it, it comes as a bit of a shock because you're suddenly seeing this character behave in such a completely different way mm. that it's it really contrasts yeah, well, they're all, to varying degrees, sort of invincible, or at least have powers, supernatural mm-hmm. powers of some of some extent, apart from Paul Xander, who is the most vulnerable character in the show. Yeah, which is why The Zeppo is such a great episode of television, yeah. both within within the kind of context of the show of just acknowledging that by that point, he's not got kind of control of magic, he's not got super strength or anything, he is just the guy who hangs out with them and uh, provides quips it's my favorite uh, you know i know we haven't asked that question yet but that's absolutely my favorite episode of the show yeah it's uh I, that was one of the ones i've rewatched this one and it is just so so funny it's such a great kind of deconstruction of the way in which television is meant to well work. It's, it's the rosencrantz and guildenstern a dead of buffy <laughs> <laughs> or, or the lion king three of buffy <laughs> <laughs> yeah the kind of the high and the low of uh, of culture there, um, yeah. uh, in much the same way as you have like Theseus' ship and the sugar babes. You know, it's the same sort of <laughs> the same idea. Um, uh, one of the also the things that I thought was really interesting in, in considering the show from the perspective of twenty seventeen um, were the characters of the of the trio in season six. Yeah, who, like when the show first 
aired like i thought oh it's quite funny they're kind of making fun of these kind of like fanboys who feel entitled about the show but now looking at them i kind of think oh this show predicted like gamergate and mras because that is <laughs> that is exactly what they yeah. they are right down to the dynamic of like if you look at something like gamergate where like there's that core of people who are just hardcore misogynists and you know some may call them deplorables um <laughs> including themselves and their twitter handles uh who are just kind of like they are just you know awful awful people but then there are those people who just kind of get pulled into the orbit of it because they don't feel like they've got anything going on in their lives or they feel like ignored and these people offer them some sort of escape from the mundanity of their lives and you can totally see that dynamic playing out with warren and uh jonathan and andrew yeah they do seem to have an irrational hatred for a powerful blonde woman <laughs> mm, yeah yeah warren especially and i think the show did a great job well i think don't they introduce him in the episode where he builds the buffy bot or does he show well no he he's built a robot girlfriend because his ah. previous girlfriends rejected him and then um the robot ends up killing his ex-girlfriend i think does that happen yeah. Um, yeah. and then spike forces him to build the buffy bot at the end yeah but like they introduce him building his robot girlfriend and that's kind of you know misogynist in his own way but then he becomes such a uh, a pat not not powerful because he's obviously just kind of a, a, a terrible oik who does awful things but like he he becomes like such a, a focal point for the show's exploration of misogyny in season six in a way uh that i don't think i really appreciated at the time as like a 16 year old or whatever but like yeah. now now i watch it it's like oh yeah this they're, they're really kind of digging deep on these kind of yeah like you say women pe- people who men who hate kind of powerful women and will go to any lengths to take them down and destroy them yeah i mean he's a very uh, dangerous and threatening character you know you didn't you mm. don't sort of and it, as it turns out they're not really the the big bad of season six yeah you know, that ultimately ends up sort of being willow i guess but um mm. you know they're the catalyst to that but there's something so i found something really genuinely shocking and upsetting watching that episode for the first time because it existed in a different universe and one where people don't have guns you know and don't shoot people Mm. that's not how people die so warren just you know his hatred manifesting itself in that way was 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 a brilliant piece of writing because it was it was thoroughly shocking after there being so much death and destruction in buffy just having someone be shot was genuinely startling i think also because it's in broad daylight Mm. you know it's it's Mm. in the safe space of her house her garden and it's and it's so bright and light compared to you know all the other shady goings on in the in the show generally happen at night absolutely there's no demon to be conjured you know there's no big build-up there's no spell it's just that's how it's terrifying because we're all vulnerable to that you know we're not we're not vulnerable to hellmouth but someone could literally just walk up and shoot you you know Mm. yeah and it also kind of makes for an interesting counterpoint with the body where someone dies in the most kind of ordinary way yeah. after five seasons of a show being about people dying in extraordinary ways and, and ways that are kind of fantastical sometimes his, uh, heroic but generally all within that fantasy milieu but someone just dying from a from a brain hemorrhage uh and the kind of going through the the kind of the the mundanity of, of you know of grief which is the kind of the most horrible thing in the world but having to sit, go through that without the fantastical edge is uh, really powerful it's the helplessness of it. It's the sort of, it's the, mm. um, well, it's the Superman and Jonathan Kent, isn't it? That's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
it really captures that that dazed feeling of of grief. I think it's a really brilliant episode of television. Mm. And it does allow the characters to because the show had such a great and varied cast to all have their own distinct personalities it ends up allowing the show to explore many different reactions mm. to grief yeah perhaps like, emma caulfield's best performance mm, in that episode yeah just explain ex, uh, expounding on kind of the primal feeling of of losing someone and just being like you know i don't understand i don't understand why this is happening mm. but then you also get Xander punching a hole in the wall yeah. <laughs> which is like the other end of it where you just you can't express your feelings so you just want to hurt things well, I think yeah. it's very sweet Anya's essentially a child you know and she doesn't understand mm. how to how to process somebody not being there anymore and it's it's a lovely bit of performance when she goes from what we presume being her normal sort of quite crass glib self to actually explaining why she's behaving the way she is and her sort of her voice cracks and you know it's, the, it's a really lovely bit of acting mm. Mm. The Body is one of the more formally adventurous of, uh, episodes of the shows in that like, it, it becomes this very kind of stark, almost like a John Cassavetes movie where it's all kind of handheld and bleak. And I think one of the things that is often kind of pointed to as one of the really innovative aspects of, of Buffy was that over the course of the show, um, Joss Whedon and his crew were very willing to experiment with the form like even the, even though they kind of kept within the tone of the show they would try and do different things differently in a kind of a lot of different ways I was just wondering what episodes of the show really kind of stand out for you guys as examples of the show experimenting um well I think we've already kind of touched on a couple of them there so the Zeppo obviously we talked about and um and the body uh, Hush, I think we were sort of alluding to earlier, which was something that <clears throat> was really, really unusual and uh, seemed like a very, very deliberate choice because up until that point, obviously, Joss Whedon's always so praised for his um, writing and the whole team that he built around him, their very distinct style of dialogue. So to take that and create something which has pretty much no dialogue was was a very bold move and a really really good episode and I think kind of brings to the fore how much else about the show and the way it's put together and the performances and everything are really really well put together yeah absolutely I mean the the big one is obviously once more with feeling mm. both in well everything about it the fact that it's a musical um and it's an entirely sung musical the way that it's shot like um like an MGM style um in 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 widescreen and uh, I mean it predates La La Land by <laughs> <laughs> by quite some quite some way and then I was thinking about um Normal Again is an episode that people don't talk about that much yeah that really stands out to me as again when we're talking about um how it's how it's shot um going between the two versions of reality which both look mm. very different kind of the bleached out um insane asylum <laughs> and um you know the the what we perceive to be reality and a really bold episode of the show for leaving some ambiguity about whether she is insane or not mm. and she's mm. just given into her delusion i think it's pretty much heavily implied that she is yeah insane <laughs> i remember re-watching that episode and actually thinking hang on <laughs> it is yeah. quite a, 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 a you know unsettling ending for that reason yeah you see the sadness of sort of it, it carries on after she's a supposedly sort of defeated everything and you see sort of Joyce realizing that she's lost her daughter to this delusion yeah yeah it's inception before inception mm. you know <laughs> raising the question 
yeah in and also um in terms of using the different visual style that was something that joss whedon then used on firefly for that episode where it's through three different time periods and like they're all in a different color grade to mm. indicate it mm. uh yeah which is quite quite it's clearly something he like like you say he was someone who was renowned as a as a writer obviously that's that's where he got started he was nominated for an oscar prior to for, for co-writing toy story prior to buffy starting mm. but uh like in those episodes he really does showcase his visual his his ability as a visual storyteller and that's the the thing about hush that still uh, is remarkable for me today is that a it's still really creepy like the gentlemen are horrible mm. <laughs> they are such horrible horrible looking creatures but it does such a good job of synthesizing silent film horror but also silent film comedy because mm. so much of that is the cast trying to communicate with each other without being able to say words uh, and is whether it's just um Alison Hannigan writing hi Giles on her board <laughs> or or Giles is um incredibly bloody stick figures when he's uh, doing the overhead projector thing uh, it's a it's one of the most interesting um i should stop trying to say interesting <laughs> captain fantastic it's a non-word it's such a fascinating look at the the way in which television storytelling which is also seen more as a writerly medium anyway uh can be visually dynamic and can tell a story without the, the crutch of the written word mm. Yeah, yeah, they were very, very good at having a lot of fun with visuals. I liked how they would often play with the the credit sequence, whether that's in Once More with Feeling or in, in, in Superstar. Those mm. opening credits were really fun. Mm. Um, yeah, I... seeing Jonathan being the the star of the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that was also something that I think Joss Whedon wanted to do from the very beginning with the Eric Balfour character in the first episode, mm-hmm. where. He wanted to include him in the opening credits so that his death, spoilers, I guess, his death would be, <laughs> would be a surprise. It's Eric Belfort. He dies in everything. Um, uh, but yeah, like so that his death at the end of the hour would be at the end of the second episode would be shocking. Um, although in retrospect now, it's really funny that the um, that like, Buffy is so... Um, uh so invested in trying to save his character like he's <laughs> just like oh and you know he's this really important figure in her life and it's like a you've just met him and b we know he doesn't hang around long yeah it's, it's i think the first couple of episodes although they're not perfect they do a lot of um fun stuff i like how it's sort of we all know that the events of the film happened, but you don't mm. have to have seen the film. So we yeah. don't have to go through sort of the tedium of another origin story where sort yeah. of Buffy discovers her powers. Buffy already knows she's got powers. She's already burnt down her old high school. And, you know, her attempts to fly under the radar don't last very long. But it's, but it's nice to kind of have that understanding right from the start. Yeah, you kind of, you get the little bits of setup, but they're, they're quite nicely undercut. So when she's first in talking to Giles and he's, you know, to each generation a Slayer is born and she ends up basically just going blah, blah, blah in his face. <laughs> so yeah. cursing off being yeah. like, yep, I've heard it before. We know what this is. Um, yeah. Let's move on with the show now. Yeah, I didn't like it from Donald Sutherland, but don't like it from you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also the one, one of the very few examples of a reluctant hero where you kind of are on her side from that because you think, 
yeah, she's already done a lot of things. She's already saved like a lot of people's lives and done something heroic. Let her just kind of be a teenager, but then it turns out that she's moved to the absolute worst place in the world to want to move if you want to escape a life of fighting monsters. Yeah. She's an immediately interesting character, you know, because, mm. uh, even if you haven't seen the film. Um, her rejection of sort of Cordelia immediately and mm. going straight for the outcast sort of shows that she's broken in a way that we might not be able to see on the outside, but identifies as a misfit despite looking like a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, in also in terms of things that are kind of great from the out, I feel like Alison Hannigan really had a handle on Willow from the very beginning. Like, she has that mix of shyness and brokenness and outsiderness, but she's also just kind of such a, a bundle of sunshine. <laughs> she's yeah. such a, a wonderfully optimistic person, and you can see why Buffy would be drawn to her, not just because she's an outsider and she's been ostracised by Cordelia, who's just being awful to her for no reason, but she's actually, like, a uh, kind of an interesting character. She's also just kind of a, a a lovely person, like almost instantly you feel such sympathy for her. Yeah, I think yeah. she starts off in a in a in a way that, as you said, she's got such a good handle on that character right from the beginning. She doesn't really change. I think going back and rewatching the first episode, the one that really stands out is um, Angel, and you're like, what? Is that where he started? He doesn't yeah. seem... <laughs> it just, by the time you get to the end of the third season and then by the time he gets into his own show, he's he's a completely different character. That And I, you understand why they introduce him in that way, this sort of like, do we trust him? Do we not? He's moody, he's whatever, hiding around in the shadows. But then <laughs> within a few episodes, it almost, it almost doesn't make sense that that's how he begins because in retrospect, you know that actually he's been watching Buffy for a while. Of course, he didn't think she was going to be taller. Of course, you know, all these little things that he says um, start to seem a bit silly after after a while. Yeah, I mean, I I think part of my problem with Angel is that I didn't watch Angel. And the reason I didn't watch Angel is because I don't like Angel. Now, everyone (laughs) tells me that if I watched Angel, I'd like Angel a lot more. But we're kind of in a Cats 22 situation here. Um, (laughs) And I, I have seen odd episodes of Angel, the ones where people would really say, oh, you have to watch the puppet episode or whatever. And they are, again, great um, episodes where, where they're really playing with the form. Um, and I understand that that character ends up being a lot funnier and more interesting. But I didn't like him from the off. I thought he was a dreary drip. <laughs> I think it'd be funny to sort of watch that, watch that opening few episodes and how he is then contrasted with when he comes back um, at the end of season seven to... to try and help with the fight and there's that whole thing about spike and he's like oh, now now it's the cool new thing to have a soul and he's suddenly <laughs> yeah. he's bringing he's bringing back all the humor and the personality that he's built up through angel yeah, and if you hadn't been watching that at all it must have been like huh what happened to him like, who is this guy but then yeah. buffy tells him to leave and i'm like good <laughs> leave <laughs> yeah i mean the, 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 that's one of the great qualities of of the show i mean and really television as a a form i guess is that it does offer the opportunity for writers to course correct and to kind of alter alter things as they go along like uh, maybe emphasizing some characters over another and i think that's something that joss whedon does just in the fact that he would like to bring actors back like like um julie benz was meant to die in the very first episode Mm. and he liked working with her so much they said, okay, we'll let you live and we'll bring you back. And she ends up becoming such an integral part of both Buffy and Angel. Uh, I think that that speaks to his grounding as someone in television who who realises that 
there's a lot of potentials that you can really tap into if you find the right people or if there's an idea that you want to explore but maybe isn't right for just a single episode absolutely and i and i don't i don't have a problem with with david boreanaz i think that character just didn't work for me i mean i like bones mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and i think david boreanaz every time i see him on anything he seems like a pretty funny and charming guy um mm-hmm. yeah i i've never i was never invested in buffy's love life at any point in the show it wasn't something that i was interested in um and actually i couldn't care less about whether she ended up with angel or spike I, nothing about that was interesting to me or Riley, Riley the. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's why they brought in Dawn, really, so that she had a different focus. Or mm. well, not the only reason they brought her in, obviously, but giving her a focus that wasn't about having a love life. It was, it was giving her a focus for a relationship without that having to be about a guy. That's an excellent and probably very astute point. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, absolutely. Um, because it it just never felt necessary to me and it really wasn't the thing that I was interested in. I feel like I feel like Xander in the Zeppo watching those scenes between Buffy and Angel, <laughs> rolling my eyes, going, Oh Jesus. <laughs> David Bonnie was probably the most fun one he, once he went bad, once he became unjealous. Yes, and actually on my list of favourite episodes, um, I only have eyes for you is my favourite episode of season two, and I think that makes the most of, of that relationship of Angel's transformation and it's a it's a brilliant episode. I love that episode. Is that the one where Jenny dies or not? Uh, no, no that's, that's the one where that's the one where um they are where Buffy and Angel are trapped in the school. Angel is Angelus mm-hmm. and they are possessed by um a school teacher and her schoolboy lover yes. who ended up accidentally killing her. So mm-hmm. they're speaking what they're saying, the dialogue is pretty reminiscent of <laughs> Of, of what's going on in their own lives but they're actually mm. and and they you know they kiss again and that's when the souls go up to heaven uh, of the the school teacher and and her and her lover and then angel immediately reverts back to being angelus mm. yeah that's a great episode uh i think the that uh, jenny's death is the, the the whole thing of the angelus arc that kind of really stuck with me because i remember there had obviously been deaths on the show prior to that but that was the one that was just kind of the most shocking to me at that early stage in the show's life this character that had been built up and this is something the show did a lot obviously but like a character built been built up as kind of an integral part of the show's world and the team just kind of dispatched and then obviously you get the the kind of incredible cruelty of of uh angelus kind of setting up giles's house so like yeah, what a dick, right? <laughs> yeah. oh, it's, it's, re- it's just really really horrible but that's um you know that's one of the things the show could do really well is that it had a fairly strong rogues gallery uh, although kind of some of the some of the later villains aren't as as impressive but um like it could do a surprising death really really well yeah yeah there were some genuinely shocking deaths on the show um, the impact would depend on how much I cared about those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for example, I think Tara was a pretty underwritten character on the show, and I found her sure. quite irritating. And her and Willow were sort of a bit saccharine together, and I think that was from very good intentions of just wanting to show a very healthy, very happy lesbians are great. We're doing this really well, um, but Tara sort of is a bit drippy as a result. Um, so although her death um, is, is a catalyst for some major incidents in the show, I wasn't particularly 
emotionally affected by it. Mm. Well, I was I, I was just going to say I, I do find that um, Tara was Tara sort of the catalyst as well for another really really great moment um, when her family shows up and there's that Buffy has that speech of saying yeah you want to come and get her but you've got to come through us because mm. we're her real family now, um, which mm. I thought was a really a really nice moment in that sort of other modern family kind of way yeah that was a good episode yeah no you're right um and nicely done um as a you know another pretty on the nose metaphor about emotional abuse and victimization and it turning yeah. out that there's nothing wrong with her but how easily you could be convinced that there is something wrong with you yeah uh, i yeah i think also it's a really nice articulation of the one of the there's lots of overarching themes of the show but the idea that you know that that people build their own families as they you know as they get older and go out into the world and, and the family you have like as you go through life is not necessarily the one you're born into and that is the most literal version of that in that tara rejects her family because they seem to be terrible people yeah. <laughs> um uh in order to stay with the family that has coalesced around her because they actually like her for who she is which yeah is... but I, I i mean that's the episode where they sort of finally have to stand up and go actually yeah we do like your girlfriend because before then they're basically <laughs> completely indifferent to her yeah. <laughs> they're sort of forced into it going yeah fine <laughs> she can be friends with us <laughs> yeah yeah i think tara's probably more interesting for like you say catalyzing certain things like she her death is the reason why willow goes bad and very nearly destroys the world well um, she's a, she's a woman in a refrigerator isn't she i mean that's what yeah. she becomes for willow yeah that's yeah that's that's a and very, i know a lot of the um the lgbt community have a problem with you know there being these romances and shows where nearly always one of them ends up being killed off they always yeah. end in tragedy yeah yeah that's a very good point yeah, the show. That said, a lot of a lot of the relationships in Buffy end in tragedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it's the the kind of the trade off in being a show that kind of wants to push the envelope, like you say, by showing a kind of a relatively healthy relationship, a uh, lesbian relationship, in on a show, and to try and make it seem even in a fantastical setting like incredibly kind of normal and and usual, but then also kind of being restricted by saying, okay, we can't go too far. You know, mm. this is it is still the early two thousands. You know, we can't we can't have everything just end happily <laughs> for everyone. No, and and Willow does get another girlfriend, with, and and that again seems like a pretty happy relationship. And Kennedy's probably a bit less annoying than Tara. Yeah, we spend less really? time with her. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in in terms of um, like other themes in the show, um, one of the ones that that really stands out to me particularly now is like anti uh, anti authoritarianism yeah. mm. anti authoritarianism and anti establishment kind of feeling because if there's one recurring theme in the show it's that you can never trust any institution whatever no matter how much they seem to want to help you whether it's the school the local government the the initiative so i guess that's the military but even the watchers council who are revealed to basically be just kind of controlling kind of uh sexist i guess kind of an institution that exists to control these kind of like powerful women rather than to kind of help them uh, except for giles who ends up kind of breaking away from them because they are you know pretty terrible and they do pretty awful things to the the women in their charge mm. i wonder a little bit how much of that is the anti-authoritarianism and how much is is you know to do with the um to do with establishments and how much of it is just the kind of 
adults always think they know best and actually they've got no idea what's going on with younger people when they're growing up. Because I'll mm. be honest, that's always kind of how kind of I read it. Mm-hmm. But perhaps that's just because they start young and I think maybe that is the vantage point from which it begins. I suppose you're right, it probably does as she gets older and it does turn more towards the military and that kind of thing, it's probably developing into a more general authority can't be trusted. But Well, yeah, I mean, and let's not forget the, the, the best big bad and the, the most searing criticism of the benign face of authority, Mayor Richard Wilkins III, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, He's who's amazing. my favourite baddie. Yeah. Yeah, mine too. Same here. Yeah, he's just such, like you say, he's just great illustration of how power and institutions can be corrupted so easily if you have someone at the top who's kind of corrupt and willing to do anything, and also is kind of an immortal snake demon. Yeah, like, like... <laughs> that that snake demon uh, CG is still disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's um yeah, some of the effects in the show. I think also it doesn't help now that they've converted the show to HD for like Netflix. Oh. So some of the effects that didn't look too bad in regular definition now look especially cheesy. Like in the Zeppo, there's a bit where Giles is um talking to kind of eldritch spirits, I guess, to try and get advice. And it's just kind of a cloud. And when the cloud disappears, it's very clear that they're just kind of, they've just kind of wiped the smoke off the screen. (laughs) Uh, And and like the layering of it, it's like if you watch um, like episodes, old episodes of The Simpsons in HD, you can clearly see like the lines around the characters where the the cells are moving, which is kind of fun in its own way. Yeah, charming. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, the the makeup, anything physical still really holds up, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, what's the vampire the, looks are good. The vampire look is good. And what what's the episode? I can't remember what it's called. Where where Giles turns into a demon? Oh yeah. Oh, oh. that's cool. But I've always thought that makeup was really great. And that that episode I find deeply upsetting because that's one of my sort of those you know primal horrors is sort of waking up transformed into something else and um, unable to communicate. Yeah, yeah. But it's but it's both a funny and genuinely horrifying episode. But I can't remember what it's called or what series uh, it's been in. It's called A New Man. Ah, very good. There we go. Yeah, I think the the one episode that kind of ties into the kind of primal fear for me is is normal again, just because, mm. like, when I, I when I watched it for the first time, it did kind of just kind of unlock something in my mind which thinks, what if none of this is real? What if I am just <laughs> mad? Uh, um, and I wouldn't have any way of knowing it. And it's a really, um, like, particularly, like, when, like, you know, probably when, like, 14 or 15 when that episode aired, you just be kind of like... Yeah, man. What if it is all? That's fake? a classic yeah. teenage preoccupation, isn't it? And so, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's it's so solipsistic. You know, what if the yeah. world only <laughs> exists in my head? <laughs> but but what yeah. that remains, I mean, looking at the Black Mirror series that just came out, playtest is basically the exact same thing of mm. not knowing what's real and what's going on. Yeah, that was a good episode. Or um, like Farscape did that on like multiple occasions. There's multiple episodes where it turns out that it's all been kind of inside the main character's head and it's always terrifying because <laughs> like they get finally get what they want and no, none of it's real. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, in terms of the kind of the, the influence of the show, like when I was thinking about um, the ways in which it changed television, like the most obvious one, I think, is that it, it um, made the idea of doing a musical episode a standard trope. Because before then, a few shows had done it, but since that episode aired in late 2001, 
they're like if you look on lists like almost every single one follows after it because everyone said oh like this is like a thing that you can do if you're a comedy or a fantasy show is that you if you want to get a lot of attention you will kind of say let's do a let's do a big musical number yeah they're doing all with Supergirl aren't they uh yeah i would be not be surprised well the, the immediate aftermath seemed to be a lot of subpar sort mm. of supernatural shows for for girls um yes like, like charmed and mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing and i suppose that hasn't really gone away yeah i think it, it's interesting that it's the show started on the wb which eventually kind of transformed into the cw because uh if you look at the cw's lineup now pretty much every show they air in some way seems to feel like they're trying to recreate the feeling of Buffy. Like, mm. Riverdale has that a yeah, lot. Yeah, I was just going to say, mm. I'm watching Riverdale now and really enjoying it because it reminds me of Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> P- particularly in the, A, it's a, you know, a teen set show with genre elements, but even like, like there's that line in the first episode where they says, you know, um, have you read Truman Capote? You know, I'm Breakfast and Tif- Tiffany's this place is very in cold blood, which is a line I can yeah. totally see being on Buffy. Um, yeah, Cordelia also, could deliver that line for sure. Also, it has um, like like Buffy starts with the with the Dala scene kind of as a statement of intent. I feel like Riverdale starting with a character saying "Game Changer," Archie got hot is about as good a summation of of that show's kind of phrase uh, and <laughs> as you could as you could possibly find. Yeah, m- maybe in twenty years we can we can sit down and t- talk about Riverdale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But if you also look, CW is also the, the the home of the DC um, television universe with like Arrow and The Flash and now Supergirl and all of those shows are and Legends of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All of those shows kind of have, particularly The Flash, has exactly the ha, try to mimic the tone of Smallville to an extent. But Smallville was like, what if Buffy but Superman? That's kind of like what Smallville kind of existed for. That's why they created it. And it's interesting that like those four shows, you look at them, you think, yeah, it's kind of got big cast of characters, superhero power, super powered, funny dialogue, and a tone that is at once kind of high camp and funny, but also has moments of like crushing tragedy. Yeah, I didn't watch Smallville, and I don't actually. Other than Buffy, I haven't really had this relationship with any sort of, um, I suppose, teenage um, show, um, mm. or at least one that's aimed at teenagers. Though, but I keep meaning to sort of sit down and, and watch Alias and Veronica Mars, which I guess are probably the most successful and the most critically lauded of the sort of Buffy ripoffs. Mm. Yeah, Alias is really good. Well, Alias is really good for a couple of seasons and then it kind of falls off. But, you know, that's seems to be what happens when you have like a very high concept show is that you can only keep running <laughs> for so long before you run out of ideas. No, I mean, that's one of the things that's so remarkable about Buffy, like seven, seven series where they really continue to push the envelope, sometimes not to the delight of fans, but I think, I think it's really brave that they continue to push things so much. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, and it was a show that kind of had had bumps along the way as any show that has to produce 22 episodes of television a year will do but they always found kind of new new things to try and like you say they weren't always successful but for the most part they were they they tended to work pretty well yeah i think even the sort of the one-off episodes that you kind of think yeah it wasn't the strongest it was still there was always still something in there that would make you laugh or that would move a little bit of character along or would move something along a bit that that was just entertaining so yeah, I mean, sometimes an episode 
might not be the strongest in terms of monster of the week or of the individual plot but because you are so invested in these characters and you care about them so much they'll throw in a bit of character development which makes the whole episode it lifts it to a completely different level which didn't doesn't happen in many other shows thinking of like something like hell's bells which is quite a silly episode um with kind of you know xander from the his future self warning him not to get married and all of um, Anya's like ridiculous relatives and demon pals <laughs> but then him leaving her at the altar is completely fucking devastating yeah yeah and in once more once more with feeling that happens as well like you have this big colorful high concept idea of like hey the whole show's a musical now but then like during the the kind of the big musical number at the end like Buffy talks like about how separate she feels from everyone since coming back from the dead and it's kind of a big character moment that then sets up a kind of dissolution over the next couple of episodes because she still doesn't quite she doesn't feel Mm. right having been like as she says ripped out of heaven and brought back to earth yeah those Uh, pricks (laughs) it's it's quite an interesting way that they did that when you think of it in those terms because it's such a big glossy shiny happy episode to to extent some purposes and then when you actually look at the content that comes out of it, it it could done another way have been one of the really more dark and depressing episodes where she's having to confess all this stuff and stuff that she couldn't just say to them so the only way that she's been able to get it out is through being forced to sing yeah Um, and and also obviously begins that thing with spike or or with the kind of the xander and anya song which is like a big kind of happy kind of duet that they're doing together but all they're doing is listing all of their deep concerns about their relationship oh, yeah. Uh, and... yeah and isn't there i can't think if it's in hell's bells or the or a different episode when they when they do some flashbacks to the musical episode and you hear um anya singing to xander when he's asleep about how excited she is to get married mm. yeah i think that's yeah that might be hell's bells yeah, yeah. poor anya <laughs> Yeah, a, a, one of the best characters, kind of given the most short shrift by the finale. Like, well, you say that. I mean, but and that. Speaking of romances, that was the one I was most invested in in the show. Mm. That was the one I really cared about. And although, yeah, it is, it is brutal and abrupt when she dies. And then I think sometimes people mistake um, Xander's deep feeling for glibness. But I always thought that was a sort of a perfect Xander reaction to to that. I mean. You can't have him just breaking down and sobbing, you know, that would sure. halt the whole episode. Yeah, I think for my problem is just, like, I understand the abruptness is kind of the point, but, like, there was so there's so few minutes of the show left that you kind of don't have a chance to process it amongst everything else. So it's like, oh, it's kind of a big thing for the characters, but because the show is literally, like, five minutes from being over, it's kind of... Yeah, uh, but they have to kill deadly. a couple of people... Yeah. They couldn't kill the core four, you know. You Spike and Anya feel like about the right level of people to get killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear Spike comes back in Angel anyway, which kind of really undercuts that moment. Yeah, it, it does, but it's worth it. Okay, well, maybe, maybe maybe what should come out of this is that I should finally sit down and watch Angel. I think you should. I think you yeah, should. the his 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 relationship with Angel, their very antagonistic relationship is... Maybe the original odd couple, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Are there any other um, elements of the show that that you guys uh, want to discuss? Well, I was just thinking about season four, which we haven't talked about very much, which is a real stinker 
of a of a season and I think um everyone felt quite let down by it and really um emblematic of the problem that a lot of um teenage shows have like what do you do when they leave high school and just kind of going oh let's go to college let's do Buffy the college years didn't mm. really work I'm sure it was always the plan to have that not work and for for you know everything that happened afterwards with the introduction of, of Dawn and you know and the loss of Joyce and Buffy having to you know be become self-sufficient you know and find her own way in the world mm. but season four is looking back I can't really ever imagine sitting down and, and watching it again that said I think it's sort of brilliant that they defeat the baddie in the penultimate episode and then the last episode of season four which heavily foreshadows season five is completely brilliant like restless is an amazing episode yeah and it's the the little setups and easter eggs like you say that are leading into the with the count you know counting down from I forget the number and then Tara saying to be back before dawn. Yeah. All these little setups that, that don't mean anything when you watch it the first time and you just mistake for, well, it's just dream talk, weird stuff happening. Here's the guy with the cheese again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> who's an amazing character, obviously. But then when you pick it up in, in the start of season five and dawn does appear, you're kind of like, oh, hang on, didn't they say something about them? I mean, yeah, look, we haven't and... even touched on that. Holy shit, that is some audacious TV making. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh... yeah. The show, I think also, it's, it's up there with The Sopranos as one of the best shows at depicting dreams, like how dreams feel. And that episode is like totally has the disjointed and um, un, that unearthly quality of a dream, which is... I, yeah, I guess because when you film in a studio, you can do that thing that happens in dreams where like sets just bleed into each other. Mm. So they can navigate around the whole... Of, of the Sunnydale universe, but suddenly, you know, but it doesn't make any geographical sense, which is, of course, what a set is like anyway. Yeah, and, and the, yeah, like you say, the the revelation of Dawn um, and her introduction and the way in which they rewrite, essentially, the lives of all the characters to have included this character who no one has ever seen before, A, probably annoyed the hell out of people online, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> Uh, which kind of bleeds through into some of the dialogue of the the trio at certain points, where they they essentially take kind of topics from fa uh, message boards and have them enter the world of the show. But yeah, it is just kind of such a hugely ambitious choice to make, and the sort of thing that if uh, Joss Whedon wasn't so confident and his writers weren't so confident in what they were doing, you could you know any other show wouldn't dare kind of make that choice. Yeah, I think you get plenty of shows where they'll try and bring in a new character, but they'll do it in a way that they can easily be taken out again. And I suppose mm. in a way Dawn could have been taken out again because it's like, here's a new character, oh, but she's kind of not real. Mm. But to have done it with that confidence, as you say, and introduced her in a way that she's immediately accepted, not just into their present, but into their entire history from before we've ever met any of them. It's, yeah, it was a total game changer. It would have been very easy for her to be like that Buffy's dad had had another daughter, you know. Yeah. While he, and, and we hadn't met her yet. That would have been so easy to do. Yeah. Um, and, and like you say, it did create an expectation. When I watched season six, I thought that Dawn would basically be gone in a puff of smoke at the end of it. Mm. Um, and really interesting that they kept her. And as you said, gave something, gave Buffy something to care about beyond her romantic relationships and in the absence of, um, you know, Joyce, she needed something to, to, you know, root her in reality. Yeah, and 
it's also uh, plays into the idea that the idea of glory as the villain in that where she's where the none of the characters except for spike realize that she and ben are the same person so it, there's this recurring theme throughout the season of perception and people's ideas about the world constantly being kind of toyed with by forces they don't understand yeah when uh, joyce's brain tumor starts to kick in she can suddenly see that dawn's not her daughter anymore that's mm. yeah but that's horrible isn't it i yeah. just remembered that mm. very cruel yeah it was a cruel show it was so mean to its characters <laughs> yeah <laughs> but in a way that's uh you know great also, I, I just in terms of the, the way in which the show's influence has kind of permeated out, obviously, like, writers on the show have gone on to create other things, like Stephen S. DeKnight, who went on to create all the Spartacus shows and is going to direct Pacific Rim 2, so he's kind of ascending, I guess. <laughs> who knows how Pacific Rim 2 is going to turn out, but... Uh, and Jane Espenson went on to, to work on a bunch of shows. But I think it's interesting how much the show changed the discourse around how people discuss shows because the fact that people do kind of throw out in criticism and, and writers rooms the the phrase big bad which is yeah. a, a, a term that originated on buffy as kind of one of a, a kind of a glancing aside and has now basically become the way in which you describe a show particularly like a genre show where you say okay it's going to have like a villain that's going to be operating in the background and eventually they're going to confront i kind of that was something i was just thinking about when i was doing the research she's like oh yeah this is like just an accepted bit of terminology that everyone knows which didn't exist before buffy did mm. yeah no that never occurred to me but you're absolutely right um i also um i get very excited when i see marty noxon's name attached to anything mm. now and actually i loved um unreal um yeah great show. which i'm really looking forward to the the third season of which i think is really great and 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 i love the fright night remake which was almost like getting an extra bit of Buffy for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, in terms of, I think, Buffy's structure is very similar to that of the X-Files, which is that you have uh, Monster of the Week and then mythology stuff. But I feel like it did that idea better, and that's that's the show that people try and copy now more than the X-Files, just in the sense that they try not to have too many episodes that are just about mythology. It's more about saying, okay, we're going to wend this longer arc into the background so something like lost feels mm -hmm. to me more like the progeny of buffy than than hmm. the x-files for that reason that's interesting yeah that's yeah that is interesting um i think the, the thing that buffy got right that maybe the x-files got wrong is that the season arcs were, were self-contained and um, mm. each season feels like a kind of a fresh start and maybe the balance was just slightly, slightly better done. I never, you never felt like there were really long periods of time where you were, you were drifting away from um, the main storyline, or vice versa. That you'd end up with sort of three sort of boring, plot-heavy episodes before you'd get another fun, silly one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel it's it's one of those shows that is incredibly easy to sit down and think, oh, I fancy watching an episode of Buffy, and you can put your hands on any of the box sets and pretty much any of the discs within there and find something there that will just insane. You're not going to have to worry about, oh yeah, well, I need to think about what's led up to this point or what's going to come afterwards. A lot of them are standalone enough that they're, they're contributing to something bigger, but there's enough in that episode as there is in enough single season that can kind of carry you through a story. The only series that I probably wouldn't rewatch, well, maybe, is, is season one. Um, there, I, I couldn't even pick out a favorite episode in season one. There wasn't much there that I, 
that I have very strong feelings about. I think they were still finding their feet. I don't think it's bad. It's just it doesn't contain any of my favourite episodes. The pack's fun. The pack is fun. Mm. And <laughs> it is fun. And Xander's all sexy in it. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we end uh, every episode of the show with SRS Recommends, in which we recommend something for people to check out. Uh, what have uh, you two got to uh, recommend? I um, was introduced about a year ago to a film called uh, Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons, which is mm. a 2013 film by Stephen Chow, who directed Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle. And it's just gleefully bonkers and brilliant. And if, you, if you're familiar with kind of monkey and, and the sort of Chinese folklore associated with that, with pig demons and monkey demons and fish demons, then you'll have a good sense of of the kind of stuff that it covers. But the sequel uh, just came out in cinemas. Um, if you're lucky enough to have it playing near you, it's called Journey to the West, The Demons Strike Back. And I saw it I saw it uh, on Thursday. It was playing Odeon Panton Street in 3D. And it was even more fun in 3D. So I recommend checking those out if you haven't yet. And if, especially if you liked uh, Kung Fu Hustle. Cool. Uh, Ellie? Um, I almost kind of want to go back and say, rather than recommending new stuff, just because we've been talking about this, the one thing that it's it's reminded me of so much um, that I haven't watched pretty much since it first came out was Dollhouse. Mm. And I don't know whether that got a bit overlooked. Certainly not as many people that I know ever watched it. And I, obviously there's the, the Joss Whedon connection. There's the uh, Eliza Dushku connection. But actually... The other two um, characters, so Envoy Yokai and um, I forget the girl's name, uh, Deacon Lackman, I think it is, are just absolutely fantastic. I think it, it didn't really get as much of a run as it should have done. And I think within that, there's some really, really great performances and some quite interesting episodes and interesting concepts that I don't think got the run that it should have done. Yeah, well, I've, I've never watched Dollhouse, so I'm going to take that recommendation, Ellie. Yeah. Uh, as will I. It's the only one of the kind of the, the Whedon shows, except for like Agents of Shield, I guess. But that's not really him so much as something yeah. he helped launch. That's the only one of his shows that I've, I've never actually sat down with. Well, there you go. I'm going to recommend a show, a Netflix show called Santa Clarita Diet, which is a zombie, a kind of a yeah, I guess a zombie comedy starring Timothy Oliphant and Drew Barrymore, in which Drew Barrymore. Um, dies and comes back as someone who hungers for human flesh and it is a (laughs) very fun very dark show it's from victor fresno who previously or fresco who previously created better off ted which is a wonderfully kind of silly and also dark and bleak um comedy from from a few years ago uh and, and the whole show has this kind of wonderfully deadpan macabre sensibility to it you know where the show is on one level about uh, a a marriage in crisis um, about these people trying to kind of reconnect to each other but they are reconnecting over the question of should they murder people in order to feed Drew Barrymore and prevent <laughs> her f- in order to prevent her from um going kind of feral and hurting the people around her and it's a it's a hugely funny show I think Timothy Oliphant in particular is um freed of his kind of the need for him to be super laconic uh on things like deadwood and firefly uh, not firefly uh, justified he gets to be kind of wacky and goofy and he's he does such an interesting thing with this kind of harried husband character where he 
really kind of brings a certain kind of irony and sense of fun to it um and there's lots of it's just a, a really fun and show that deepens its mythology the longer it goes in, in a really interesting way yeah i'm enjoying i enjoyed that show too i think timothy oliphant is brilliantly unhinged in it i totally agree mm-hmm. and it, uh, speaking of metaphors it's a very it's a it's a very well done metaphor for how um certain types of men can be threatened by the women in their life becoming suddenly empowered by something mm-hmm. yeah definitely Okay, so thank you, Zoe and Ellie, for coming on the show. Where can people find you online, uh, Ellie? Oh, um, I'm on Twitter at Ipsy Dixit Ellie. Cool. Uh, Zoe? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Zozrat, Z-O-Z-R-A-T. Um, and please come and see comedy at King's Place and stay tuned for imminent announcements about the London Podcast Festival happening again this September. Fantastic. Okay, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show or other episodes of the show, please review us and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Grr, arg.